Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Left on Red, thought-provoking commentary by Trevor Cooper. I am your host, Trevor Cooper, recording from the San Francisco Bay Area in California. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. Over the last four episodes, I have laid the foundation for my American experience. I honor my ancestors and the noble people that have influenced my journey to this point. To be hopefully optimistic, though, about the future as an African-American man in 2020 is a divine order. This joy I have, the world didn't give it, and the world can't take it away. This gospel song turned cliche holds spiritual weight and literal resonance to me. To be optimistic during the times we are now living in is a manifestation of faith, not logic. To be a racial or ethnic minority in America with a drive to get out of the bed every morning and be a productive member of society is not just routine, it is a demonstration of courageousness, resilience, and power. To leave the comforts of nurture and safety, to interact in spaces that range from honest oblivion to cold indifference to one's humanity is a tall order of selflessness that I commend us for. I commend myself and I raise my fist in thanks to the ancestors for demonstrating that I, too, can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. On May 25th, George Floyd was murdered by the state of Minnesota in cold blood. This was one of the darkest days of my life. Darker than Trayvon Day. Darker than Michael Brown Day. Darker than Eric Garner Day, Sandra Bland Day, and Sean Bell Day. I was still processing the murders of Ahmaud Arbery. Breonna Taylor, Sean Reed, and Douglas Lewis. As a man of faith, I wondered to myself, how had I repeatedly reconciled, compartmentalized, and recovered from the knowledge that the United States criminal justice system justifies killing unarmed black people with near impunity? I realized that in many ways, the coronavirus pandemic was a boon to a long overdue American soul searching. Georgia's modern day crucifixion was eight minutes and 46 seconds long. Located at the intersection of police brutality and systemic racism. It was at this cross, at this cross, where I saw the most horrific, gruesome sight and the burden of my heart overtook me on that day. 
For four centuries, white people with or without badges have been the judge, jury, and executioner of black bodies. Even in 2020, unless there is a video recording, all a white person has to do is switch from aggressor to victim and claim that they are afraid for their lives and they can exercise their individual liberty under the Second Amendment with near impunity. Watching George take his last breath was an awakening for me. I have never felt the power of the Almighty God like I did on that day. The magnitude of this moment is burned into my conscience forever. For me, the knee on George's neck represents generations of oppression and hatred distilled into what was an everyday routine police encounter where I am dehumanized, I am disrespected, I am brought under the control of a white man's gun offering me two options. Option A, become non-threatening. Or option B, die. Police brutality in 2020 is the endpoint of a straight line back to slavery. The psychological effects of rogue white police officers are the equivalent of the poor white men hired to control every move made by enslaved Africans toiling in cotton fields and inhumane conditions. He sat on a horse armed with a whip and a shotgun for anyone who made a false move or did not comply with the work order. These overseers served and protected the interest of the wealthy white plantation owners, and he was given broad discretion to keep niggers in their place. These white men were not wealthy like their employers, and many were not much more advantaged than the enslaved Africans. Yet, their desire to be promoted and accepted as equals in high society fueled their brutality and created the model for policing black bodies in the 19th and 20th centuries. A model that has not been significantly reformed or improved to keep pace with a civilized and racially diverse society. Racism, bigotry, and brutal patriarchy are at the center of state criminal codes. The modern plantation is still being served and protected by men and now even women in uniform, dispatched by presidents, governors, and mayors to resist progressive social change and rebellion by any means necessary. From the reversal of the righteous egalitarian reconstruction gains for Jim Crow in the late 1800s, to the Tulsa race riots in 1921, to the FBI's coordinated campaigns to suppress the civil rights movement, the black power movement, and other progressive movements through its counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO, from 1956 to 1979 to Richard Nixon's War on Drugs in 1971, which ushered in an era of mass incarceration of black and brown bodies 
well into the 2000s, assisted by Presidents Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, George Bush, and Bill Clinton. To the thousands of black men and women stopped, harassed, beaten, and killed while traveling along the interstates and rural roads or walking or jogging through a neighborhood, killed by armed white vigilantes who are given a pass by their peers on juries to kill black bodies if and when their fragile white male masculinity is challenged or threatened. George's call for his mother teleported me back to the time I was profiled and stopped in Jersey City, New Jersey by two plainclothes detectives early one October morning in 2012. A righteous indignation or a holy boldness enables one to have peace that surpasses all understanding, even in times of crisis. It allows one to speak truth to power, even if the consequences are violence or even death. As I was disrespected, taunted, and challenged by men who were sworn to the public safety, I was prepared for the worst. I felt that my spirit had left my body as I watched this scene unfold with me as the stereotypical threatening antagonist, the young black man surrounded by white men with guns only months from clinching my law degree and moments from being shot over 55 times like Sean Bell and the NYPD by these joining police officers who would have emptied their magazines in fear for their lives and justified by data-driven policing called CompStat, which suggested through data to these law enforcement officers that I was more likely than not carrying drugs and possibly armed with a gun across state lines. They thought they'd hit the jackpot and illegally profiling me was worth the risk. After 45 minutes, no gun, no drugs. I uttered two phrases that caused this humiliating fishing expedition to end. Brooklyn DA, Rutgers Law Student. I was quickly given a summons for following too closely and eight police officers disappeared into the night without a trace, and I never saw any of their cowardly faces in court as they were not man enough to face me in cross-examination for this moving violation because I would have exposed Jersey City Police Department's practice of unconstitutional racial profiling of black men. I was taught I was legally trained. I had support. I was fortunate. I'm still mad as hell. According to a July 4th CBS News poll, 42% of Americans think race relations are getting worse. 39% think race relations are staying the same. And 17% think race relations are getting better. In the same report, 57% of Americans think police are more likely to use deadly force against a black person. 36% of Americans believe that race has no effect. And 3% of Americans think police 
are more likely to use deadly force against a white person. Notably, within this survey, 52% of white people see race discrimination against black people in the use of deadly force, which is up from 36% in 2016, while 83% of black people feel police are more likely to use deadly force against black people than white people. According to a November 2019 FBI hate crimes report, of the over 6,200 known offenders, 53.6% of hate crimes reported were by white people, while 24% were by black people. Today, 27 states have stand your ground laws that state, in essence, that there is no duty to retreat from an attacker in any place in which one is lawfully present. Eight additional states have either jury instructions or case law that provide for no duty to retreat. According to a 2014 Urban Institute report, in Stand Your Ground states, white on black homicides are 354% more likely to be ruled justified than white on white homicides, even though these are more common. Cases involving black or Hispanic victims were justified in 78% of cases and in 56% of cases involving white victims. Based on these statistics, I can reasonably conclude that if I stood my ground against a white attacker and used deadly force, there is an almost 50% chance that I will be convicted of murder by a jury. I want to speak briefly about the protest movement we have seen so far this year. At the core of the First Amendment and American democracy is the right to protest peacefully. As we have seen, law enforcement officers are under the orders of government officials and are used to control protesters and end free speech and public expression through mass arrests, excessive uses of force, and curfews. In the wake of George Floyd's murder, protests in solidarity extended all over the country, from the epicenter in Minneapolis, to Los Angeles, to Oakland, to Atlanta, to Washington, D.C., to New York, Seattle, Portland, and other areas, despite the ongoing public health crisis. George Floyd's death was the tipping point that has ignited a new generation of activists that will not stop until there is substantive police reform and more economic opportunity for people of color and the working class at the local, state, and federal levels. In my opinion, the protests were necessary, and to an extent, rioting was to be expected when decades of protesting has yielded more police acquittals and not guilty verdicts than I care to count. American courts and jurisprudence have stated clearly that black suffering does not move the powers that be to change its systems to adjust to the demographic and cultural shifts of the country. So rioting seemed like the last and only course of action for people who were already at the fringes of society, some with less food in their refrigerators than the county jail. What would you do? if someone killed your family member on video 
and was put on administrative leave until someone deemed it a murder. Rioting doesn't seem too far-fetched for the hopeless, but those who don't have to deal with the direct effects of state-sanctioned murder can just change the TV station and share messages of disgust, shock, inconvenience, and even horror to their friends before bed. This diverse post-George Floyd coalition and political movement must be led by and sustained by consistent grassroots mobilization and engagement, legislative competency to put forth draft bills and statutory amendments, and civic participation at all levels from volunteerism, political appointments, and running for elected office at the local and state levels. I also think the Black Lives Matter movement is inclusive and broad enough to now incorporate most, if not all, marginalized and oppressed groups under its umbrella, including, but not limited to, women of color, the LGBTQIA community, progressives, poor and homeless people, the mentally ill, racial and cultural minorities, veterans and felons, and to a consolidated political platform to force more progressive governance and policy changes concurrently at the local, state, and federal levels. Until we realize that the marginalized and oppressed people of America combined creates the most powerful coalition for social justice, we will continue to compete for the scraps that fall from the tables of demagogues and hegemonies. Is it humanly possible to genuinely love your neighbor as you love yourself when that neighbor has participated in, benefited from, conceded to, or sat in the safety of indifferent silence for generations of racism, bigotry, and violence against you? Is it humanly possible to genuinely love a country that confers honor and dignity onto slave-owning men who plundered, tortured, raped, and murdered indigenous and enslaved men and women with monuments, statues, schools, and streets named after them? There is no direct link between Amazing Grace and the abolition of slavery. Nonetheless, the hymn was written in 1772 by a man named John Newton, who was moved by the Spirit of God to speak out against the slave trade, a commercial enterprise he had once profited from. In an essay, Newton wrote, quote, I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders, end quote. Newton's hymn has become an anthem for activists fighting against all forms of social injustice. It has been amazing grace that has kept the marginalized and the oppressed peoples of America from burning this country to the ground for its lies, for its hypocrisy, and for its flimsy incremental reforms and its generic thoughts and prayers. That same amazing grace and mercy that God continues to give 
every one of us each day. America should thank God for His amazing grace. Thanks for joining this episode of Left on Red, thought-provoking commentary by Trevor Cooper. I hope you were enlightened, challenged, and even inspired. I will be taking a brief hiatus until October. When I return, I will be tracking closely with the 2020 presidential election. In the meantime, if you would like to connect with me on social media, then please find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Trevor, M-I-S-T-E-R-T-R-E-V-O-R. To find out more about the ministry, please go to www.impactfellowshipchurch.org. Until this fall, be well, be wise, and be nice. God bless.